Hello everyone and welcome to Law Stories. I'm Megan Talbot and I'm alone at the moment because I'm recording this uh, during post-production. You may have noticed that during our previous episode uh, we ended fairly abruptly. This is because we were having such a good time uh, recording that episode that we accidentally recorded significantly more than we'd originally intended to. So we made the decision to break it up into two parts. And today's episode is the second part of that, where we continue our conversation with uh, Chris Harding about art, the law, and research. So I hope you'll enjoy today's episode, which is part two of that. And uh, we lead straight into a question that I was asking around the middle of the interview. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the, uh, the podcast this month. I've had a, a thought, and it's that perhaps certain media particularly like the crime drama, are very bad at delivering sort of the substantive sort of procedural representative facts in certain ways. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you can't get away with that, you'd get struck off, or, or where's the disciplinary hearing here, or whatever. Or you could, or jury can't do that, that's absolutely mad. Um, but perhaps they're, what they're doing is not conveying sort of substantive truth but some sort of I know like emotive truth in a way particularly if you look at something like Fargo Fargo's actually really good at like putting you in a certain mindset and thinking of other things like um, on British TV there was a TV show a few years ago called Silk Mm. Um, Silk was not necessarily a representation of the everyday life of a QC Um, for those of you listening, Q- uh, QC is um, Queen's Council, which is a senior barrister, essentially. Um, and But those shows are very good at putting you in a, in a mindset and making you think about certain issues in a more personal and intimate way. Like a crime drama, for example, uh, say something set in prison or about organised crime, may not like show you the reality of everyday crime, because most everyday crime is like, you know, someone who on the spur of the moment decided to nick a candy bar gets caught immediately. And, uh, and, and you know, and it's quite trivial and it's not some master criminal. But a crime drama in that sort of setting can make you think in an emotive way, in a more personal way about things like, you know, prison conditions or whether or not we're over-criminalizing certain things or how, you know, just the simple ethical issue of how we treat our prisoners in general. So I wonder if perhaps those things are better at delivering a different kind of truth, in a way. Mm, yeah. I think the, the, the example you've given there of the British drama based around the barristers mm. is another interesting one, because I remember that. And, um, I, I had a bit of a reaction against that. <laughs> Actually, but, but, but this is not given us... Um, Best picture, perhaps, um, in in the sense that it uh, it was presenting them as bright, ambitious young things, you know, hustling, and um, it, it's very sort of political in a personal mm-hmm. sense, interpersonal sense, um, and uh, and and I think that I had a something of a reaction there, which is more similar to to the more general reaction you're describing for yourself. Um, which is actually this, this may be distorting things because um, <laughs> what I know about the life of young barristers is that it's not that exciting. Um, actually, it's desperate. Um, they are just looking for work. They're 
not getting very much money at all. Um, it's, it's a hard life and um, it's very gruelling in the sense of a lot of what they're doing is not exciting. It's, again, the procedural stuff. It's very routine. Um, and what's the personal fulfilment they get at the end of dealing with the case? Um, you know, these are not big cases. They're not going to be celebrated. Um, it's not going to grab public attention in the way that a limited number of trials will do. It's, um, they're just doing a job and they hope it's going to be for pay. <laughs> and the job is pretty routine. Uh, so what's this TV dramatisation saying about the life of the British barrister? Um, mm, it, it, I, I, I can see where you're coming from there, but it, it, it's potentially distorting for the public consumption and perception of what's going on. Uh, I totally agree with that, because watching it, you would want to come into the field. Yes. You yeah. would want to jump on the wagon, and then you get in and realise it's not all that. See, I actually really enjoyed that show when it was on the air. Um, and this is the sort of thing you can acknowledge that something is like a bad representation of certain things and still just really enjoy it. Um, but I enjoyed it mainly because I viewed it as a show that was more about the relationship between like these characters and office politics more than about being a barrister. Mm. And I feel like office politics is a thing almost everyone can relate to. Mm. Everyone has, you know, that co-worker they don't feel super comfortable around or, yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and to that extent, and perhaps it, it does have an important value um, because it's, as you say, talking about something which is very important in everyday life, in professional life in particular, the office politics, and you'll you, you get that in any organisation, uh, you get it in universities, you get it in the police force, you get it in the legal profession, and it's a mixture of organisational uh, ethos and circumstances and then the conjunction of individual personalities. And, well, isn't that what so much of life for us is about? Is <laughs> us, us as individuals within a particular organisational setting. And it's exploring that is valuable. Um, and, and again, there are lessons, I think, for the audience, for a wider public, in being given a dramatised version of that sort of thing happening in a particular context. Um, and realising that, well, actually, the outcome of a lot of these professional activities may well depend on more mundane, what we might think of as more mundane matters of individual personality and arguments and tensions within the workplace and um, yeah that, that's an important thing to to explore um, but again I suppose you can raise the objection well the way in which it's explored in a TV dramatization is that these things are dramatized <laughs> even as interpersonal issues rather than sort of big societal yeah. issues yeah. Like, I remember when I was when I had just come to university I was young and naive in the ways of the world and I see this so often among, like, particularly students now, in that they tend to approach every problem, like every small, little individual problem, as though it's the end of the world. It's this yeah. big, dramatic feature presentation. It's like, 
no, your housemate didn't do the dishes when you wanted them to do the dishes. It's fine. You can stop worrying. And there is a tendency, I think, because of the way we're taught from a very early age about the world through drama, that we natu- it takes us a while to unlearn that not everything has to be a big drama. Mm. I think that makes a very interesting point about dramatization in itself. Uh, and what's appealing about drama, whether it's in the theatre or film or whatever, um, is that it satisfies a basic need in individual human nature, which is to have some kind of meaning in your life. And if your life is, in a general perception, routine and mundane, well, you need to raise it above that level, don't you? And so, I think what you're talking about there is a natural tendency for each of us to dramatise our own circumstances and to, if if nothing much is happening to us, or we feel nothing much is happening to us, we want to try and transform that. And so that's why I think that very often individuals will take these everyday situations and issues and make a drama out of it, as we, we might say. Yeah. And... To, but, and to a degree, that's harmful in an everyday situation. Uh, but I found my tendency to do this has actually helped me in my work mm. and my research. For example, we talk about, oh, everyday routine work. I do a lot of work at Citizens Advice. And you say, oh, this is very routine. Most of it's helping a client fill in a form. But I really genuinely love it because you get to hear all about their lives and every life is this really rich network of stories and circumstances and I, I find it utterly delightful and when I'm doing my research just reading one case like a deep reading of one case can give you so much information about society at the time what the judges think the story around the around the the case and I don't know I I it might be my, again, tendency to just dramatise things naturally, but I I just find the work of law in, the, in this way, even in these very mundane ways, to be this really rich set of stories that I just really genuinely enjoy. Yes, and, and it, what we need to realise is that um, because these things happen at different levels, they... You know, there is the macro level and the micro level, and the macro level may be big politics, world politics, or naturally exciting and very interesting and important but also at a micro level our individual lives and our smaller network of people we deal with um, well naturally they're very important to us as individuals and so there can be the drama there which we manufacture ourselves as a a more personal drama Um, and well, at the end of the day, for most of us, most of the time, that's more important than the macro issues, which are often distant from us anyway. And at the end of the day, are they so important in what happens? Well, you, know, you can argue about that. And so, yes, I think it's, it's what we need to you know, remind ourselves is that, well, there, there can be things which are personally and individually significant in the everyday, in the routine. And and actually to draw some satisfaction out of that. Uh, and, and for most of us, that's where we're going to get most of our meaning in, in, in life. And um, so again, I, and, and, and I can think of examples of um, dramatizations which set out to depict 
the ordinary and the mundane. Uh, there's this comedy programme on TV a few years ago called The Office, which, uh, yeah, which was based on that idea that you take something which is essentially repetitive, mundane, seemingly ordinary, and you, you milk that for something which is going to be more generally interesting. And one way to do it is, is actually to see the humour in things like repetition and predictability and people behaving in a, a, a way which is essentially ordinary and predictable and um, we can get some enjoyment out of that and, and, and we do don't we I mean that, that's very often when we want to um, imitate somebody else or, um, or poke fun at them um, what we, we focus on is the fact that they keep repeating themselves and they do things in a certain way um, uh, and so in the end that does become important to us well, it's not just doing. It's not just doing a certain things a certain way. It's because what for an individual is mundane and very boring to someone else can seem a little bit weird. Uh, for example, for the listeners, we record this on a fairly large microphone, and I bring this in to the to the university mm-hmm. when we have to do, record. And there's a running joke at the research seminars that I I always have this microphone on me. Yeah. Uh, because I occasionally take it out to show it to people, um, and to me it's super mundane because you know it's just a just a microphone. But other people find it hilarious. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that, that, that's right, and it, it um, it's picking up on those, if you like, if you might like to put it in these those terms, more ordinary details of life, rather than the exciting, controversial details of. A particular situation or a narrative, and um, again, I mean, going back to my um, when I start off with a bit of a eulogy about the contemporary state of crime drama, <laughs> uh, I think what one of the ways in which I see that as good and valuable is that um, the research behind these things has become so good that they, they get the details like that right as well, and uh, so in terms of how people look, how they behave, how they speak, and then the things they're doing along the way of the drama, um, and um, the details of the surroundings. All of that has become more accurately researched to make it more convincing mm-hmm. as a representation of life out there, real life. Um, and it brings home to us the importance of the fact that, well, these small details of everyday life are significant for us. Um, we recognise them. To some extent we, we draw comfort from the ordinariness, predictability of certain situations and details in our life. And um, so we, we, we need to acknowledge that that's important. And, and so I think, I think in, in a way, the ordinary, the repetitive, the routine, the mundane does come in, in, into these dramatisations, but more as the, the background, the context. And if that's being done, then that separates a lot of contemporary crime drama from, say, cinematic presentations of 50 or more years ago, which would have been much more crude and oversimplified um, and, and based on caricature much more. Yeah, also going back to what we said earlier about imagery and helping people understand and teaching people it. I mean, if you're talking to students, 
sometimes just using that helps it you pass the message quicker mm. yes you know they are able to okay this is what happened in this movie or this is what it's like um the one just finished born to kill i don't know if anyone saw it mm -hmm. which was really quite interesting i didn't see all of it i think it was on channel four or something mm. um just a short story about this um guy who was 15 but he was already showing some um traces yeah mannerisms of you know someone who had it in him and the, the father had also killed um someone so it was easy the mom kept seeing the signs and she knew something was you know something was a bit off and cut long story short he ended up then being the one to kill the father it, very very interesting and i can imagine um standing in front of a psychology class and maybe teaching students you know, I, I found that it helped me. I'm sure it's going to help some other people. Just saying these stories or going back to one episode of CSI. Yes, maybe training, not telling them that this is not actually, I mean, the way it happened. But it helps students remember if they're in their exam hall or if they're having to say something. Just putting that, throwing that out even helps them understand the particular topic mm. as well. So um, in as much as we feel like they are, I mean, over maybe too blown up or too, the, the um, advantages can be overlooked. You know, I mean, we, we live in times when it's become increasingly important that these things are done because children, of course, would be quite occupied with maybe the internet or so people who do these things pass it through those mediums. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and I think that something like that can serve a very valuable function in the way that you're describing. And um, and you, you can also play safe with it, because you can say at the beginning, if you're using it as a teaching device, you, yeah. can, you can say to the class, look, this is just one example. Yeah. This is one way in which it could happen, or it could have happened. Let's see it in those terms. And you can even then say, okay, watch this. Afterwards, let's talk about it. Did you find it credible? Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you believe in this? Um, if if you don't, why not? So you, you're you're testing the ground then by using an example and, and testing that example, and so I think that and, and 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 you can do that in in writing. You can do it for purposes of research. You can say, well, this let's regard it as some data. Is it reliable data? Yeah. And what can we get out of it as data? Teaching purposes, what can you get out of this dramatization as a way of aiding discussion in order to move forward to a better understanding of a subject? And so you, you can set up the health warnings for yeah. using this kind of material. Disclaimers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After all, remember, this is at the end of the day a fictional account and it's not a full account. It's, it's only given you actually a small part of the whole picture. And isn't this so true when we come back to the question of legal evidence? Mm. But whatever evidence you have, however much time you have to dig around and, and, and try and find out everything that you can, you're only going to have a certain part of it. And so it's going to be an incomplete picture. Important lesson in life there, isn't it? Um, in fact, when um, first years come to Abbotsworth, um, and we do, I think it was criminal law, one of the first stories that you're taught 
is the Explorian Explorers. Is that how you pronounce it? Spelunkian. Yes, well, and Explorers, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, we go for ages, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if they do that at all universities, but I certainly found that. <laughs> no, no. I, I, so I study, I study law at Chester, and I've never heard of this case. Uh, well, it's actually, it's fiction, isn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. But you don't find out that it's fiction until you finish um, reading it all through. So basically, you, it's about people who get trapped inside a cave and it's about whether um, well how long they stay there for um so of course you've got people trying to get them out from the outside um but it looks as though they don't have enough provisions to last them so as a result um they have some dice on them and they all decide that you know one of them is going to have to be food for the rest of them basically um so who is it going to be the person that um, proposed this later on decided that actually he didn't want to be part of it at all so he pulled out so people rolled the dice on his behalf he had the lowest score so he was the one that was going to die and be eaten so that is what ends up happening um, and then you have the, the people who were in accidents trying to get them out of it out of the, the cave and who also some of them die um, but then because of course there's been cannibalism it's about whether society's rules um, apply in the cave as well as outside the cave how many people have died trying to get them out um, for the, all of them to then be um, executed because technically they've committed murder and then they've eaten somebody and then it's listening to the judges accounts and what their belief is and who is responsible and how oh, it is responsible that's so that didn't happen really it no didn't. oh jesus <laughs> <laughs> But, 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 but it does happen, but it does yeah. happen. And, yes. and of course, there is, again, this is a celebrated criminal law case from a long time ago, Dudley yes. and Stevens. Yeah, yeah. that's that. Shipwrecked people yeah. and eating the yeah. cabin boy. Yeah, and I've heard of that that's one. What, that's yeah. what yeah, that yeah. Yeah. So that's the smoking explosion just building on that, that as a yeah. real-life example. And um, and I remember that, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there was this case about a plane crash high up in the Andes, and they're up there in the snow and so on, a few survivors, and... They, they start to eat each other in the middle. <laughs> and so, so it's it's very unusual, but it, it it does happen sometimes, and it it just serves as a um, a way of testing our moral values mm. and um, our rules of survival, as it were. Yeah, um, but it, I think that was a very good example of demonstrating how many different aspects there are in the law and what people actually need to think about. So like most of the time when you think of the law, you think it's either black and white, but it's never actually 100% black and white. There are many grey areas, such as were found in looking through this explorer's um, case. Yeah. And then on, just I really love that story because just from a like legal, philosophical view, you've then got this juxtaposition of the people in the cave going, we must sacrifice one of our own so the rest of us can live. And then the people outside the cave labouring and some of them dying and being sacrificed anyway. And the juxtaposition of these two different kinds of sacrifice, one of which is totally legal and another which isn't. And that, just from a, just a, just a very simple philosophical view, I find that sort of, even in that fictional situation, that juxtaposition to be really really delicious and I'm probably kind of biased because I did work for, as a film critic for a while so I do like these sort of dramatic juxtapositions but I, I really like that that story yeah yeah, yeah. but I mean just um, as, as a final example of this sort of thing I suppose is um, one of these um, examples of um, 
a rather extraordinary situation, which then um, comes out of a, a legal case report and a case report and a judgment, and is then assumed to be based, based on a real-life situation, um, but in fact it wasn't. Um, and again, it's another criminal law case, and it's, um, it's Hill and Baxter, I think it is. It's, it's, it's a swarm of bees case where um, somebody is driving a, a motor vehicle and, and suddenly the, uh, a swarm of bees comes in through the open window of the vehicle and surrounds the head of the driver and the driver's still in control. And it's all about the legal rules relating to automatism. You see. Mm. And when I was a student, along with so many other people, I thought that Helen Baxter was actually about a case where that happened. Mm. And no, and I don't think there's any recorded experience of that happening. It comes out of a case because the judge, in given the judgment, says, let's, for example, assume that the driver is driving along and is an attack by a swarm of bees. <laughs> so it's an example which the judge thought up. It's fictional. Mm. But the storytelling, as it goes on over the years, through using that case as a precedent, the storytelling by lawyers and then by law teachers and law students, is that, oh yeah, there was a case where a swarm of bees actually came in. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a situation where, um, actually, in terms of real life, is that likely? Has it ever happened? No, we, 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 we don't actually know of any situations where that's happened. Uh, you know, to what extent you can get a swarm of bees going along a road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Think about it, it's, 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 it's a silly example in some ways. But it becomes translated into um, a reality which is then transmitted through years and years of legal discussion. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I think the, the realistic example of something like that happening is what happened to Richard Ireland a long time ago when he was riding a motorbike and some kind of insect came up underneath the visor and he's crashed on it and was buzzing around in front of him and he crashed the motorbike. Oh, God. So that's, if you like, the convincing yeah. real-life precedent. Yeah. If that were going to happen to anyone, it would happen to him. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, but that, that, that is real life. Yeah. The swarm of bees <laughs> is an imagination. The idea, though, of creating these stories and actually mm. them having some sort of benefit, for example, like if... Richard Island then did need to um, look into the legality of yeah. that. Then there are stories there yeah. for him to. That, that's right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use the analogy of the swarm of bees if you like, mm. yeah. um, even if it's not um, convincing or realistic mm. in in actual life terms. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I mean, we could do a whole. I I really like this topic of because we could do a whole episode on legal essentially like legal fictions and the role of fictional stories within the law just of itself yes. i um like law uses a lot of like fictional constructs just to explain yes. concepts and judgments like you have the reasonable man who is arguably a fictional construct mm -hmm. and uh the officious bystander who's also a fictional construct yes. and uh, and the idiot in a hurry also a fictional construct um and you've also got these cases where judges will just tell you a little story to explain their viewpoint, like um, uh, Miller v. Jackson, where you've got you know Lord Denning going on for like two paragraphs, telling this little story about how much he loves cricket. Mm. Um, I really love the the role of just telling stories just as a way of explaining stuff, just within judgments yep. themselves. Yep. And in a way, isn't that what these? 
different outlets are doing. So in these mm. dramas and these books and literature and etc., aren't yep. they doing the same thing that we do when we create stories to teach law students? Um, I suppose what to mm. draw on and how it actually might influence real life situations. Yeah, and th- this is one of the things I've always loved about law is that it is people think it's complicated and people think it's you know people in in expensive suits coming up with magical loopholes to get rich people off of crimes but in reality it's just it's, it's just telling each other stories it's, it's just telling each other stories and it's really i i love it i have a, a special fondness in my heart for just telling people stories if we're talking about uh, you know different sorts of media be they sculpture or painting or music or television um, as a way of teaching law for someone interested in learning law perhaps even a researcher can you give say a top top three or top five of things to watch or or listen to or experience top three yeah off the top of my head yeah. immediately um, the Godfather films mm. Godfather trilogy full of very um, important political, social, um, cultural commentary and observation. Uh, A great number of films and um, TV dramatisations come to mind, but I'll go on to something different. Um, uh, A number of Shakespeare's plays, which again um, are very significant in their own time as a way of exploring um, the some of the challenging and preoccupying political and social issues of that time, and you you you, you can have a whole range of um, examples from Shakespeare, and, and I'm reminded of the fact that, for instance, um, uh, when I went on a, a leadership um, training course, you know, great fun that was. Um, and um, this organisation were brought in um, called Olivier Mythodrama. Um, that's the uh, son of the well-known actor Laurence Olivier um, setting up this um, project which um, tours around and uses drama uh, in these leadership courses. And so one of the things that they did was to come and say, OK, we're going to do Henry V from Shakespeare you know, as, as an example of an exploration of leadership and and because it comes up with this very important issue of you, know, you may win the battle, but how do you win the peace afterwards? Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, Shakespeare. I I have one that I'd like to recommend, and it's a a drama. It's it's a it's a film from India, and it's just called Court, and it's from 2014. And I've got the movie poster here, uh, which okay. you can see here. Yes. Okay. Um, right. And it is a movie about a single court case about a mm. a man. Charged with, um, charged with, uh, essentially sort of disturbing the peace by peace by distributing sort of sinister literature, which is against the government, um, and it's a and it's about that court case which goes on forever. Yeah. Right that, now, that reminds me of something else, which I'll, ah, I'll yeah. give you as an example, something um, artistic, as it were, mm. which um, But recently, I got to know this person um, who professionally describes herself as an artist blogger. And she's somebody, she, a lot of the time, goes into the Supreme Court in London to, uh, I think we, you, 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 yeah, you've encountered we, her because you yes, came to one of her presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Isabel Williams. And um, 
so a lot of the time she's going into the Supreme Court and because in the Supreme Court you're allowed to actually draw live in there. Uh, no other court in the country can you do that. And so she sketches um, what's happening inside the court, comes out, uh, she's got the sketches and then she puts them onto her blog with some running commentary, her impressions of what was going on with the case, you know, in social terms, yeah. in personal terms and so on. Uh, and of course that's a particular style of visual representation through her artwork and it's very interesting in itself. Uh, but again, it's getting that um, visual representation across to a much bigger readership or audience, whatever you want to describe it as. Okay, and sort of uh, the, uh, the final question we want to ask is, is there a big misconception that people tend to have? That you'd like to co correct? I suppose in this case we've touched on it. The big, yeah, the big misconception. Well, there's a few of them. Yeah. Everything you see is accurate. And also yeah. the misconception that everything you see is inaccurate. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or um, big misconception is that you can get to the so called real mm. truth at the end yeah. of the day, yeah. one way or another. Whether it be through research, whether it be through a legal investigation, whether it be through journalists digging around and producing at the end an account, you know, in a documentary form or something like that. Uh, do we get to the truth? Um, well, I rather believe in that version in the Boomtown Rats song that um, if God can give us the answer, he's going to say, <laughs> yeah, stop looking for it. Yes, yeah. You're, you're never, never get to the complete truth of the, anything. Okay, well, okay. Thank, you. thank you very much for speaking with us today. Um, I am Linda Thompson. I'm Megan Talbot. And I'm Debbie Cobani. And I'm Chris Harding. So, uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, you can find Law Stories at facebook.com slash lawstoriespodcast, at Twitter at lawstoriespod, on Patreon if you'd like to support us. We do need financial support for hosting our episodes and things like that, so if you'd like care to support the podcast in that way, you'd certainly be welcome to. It's at patreon.com slash law hyphen stories. You can listen to us at soundcloud.com slash lawstories as well. Uh, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>